Welcome to Making Our Way, a podcast where we have conversations about some of the toughest and the best moments in life. This is a place where we hear from people who've created a way forward in spite of and sometimes because of the struggles they face. My own journey raising a child with a rare disease, Duchenne muscular dystrophy, is the inspiration for this. But this isn't just about Duchenne or my story. We all have something we're carrying. That's just life. So this is a place for all of us, for conversation, for connection, and to gain strength from each other. We are each other's keepers, and we can also be each other's teachers. We are better together. I'm your host, Marisa Penrod. Today I'm talking with Laura McClinn. Laura is one of the kindest, gentlest people I know. And she is also one of the fiercest advocates for what she believes in. She is quite literally a world changer. Her story is especially important in this month of February because February is Rare Disease Month. Some people may not think that this affects them because, well, rare disease is rare. It's someone else's journey. But rare is actually not that rare. There are between 25 and 30 million Americans with a rare disease. That's one person in every elevator you get into. Imagine how many people that would be in every grocery store you walk into. So I venture to guess that everybody knows someone for whom this month of advocacy is critical and really important. Laura and I are talking today about the idea that advocacy is really just telling our stories and building relationships. Advocating and storytelling can happen on a large scale, at a national level, or on a smaller scale. It can happen in our schools, our neighborhoods, or with our doctors and healthcare providers. And just like everyone probably knows someone with a rare disease, everyone can be an advocate for change. Whether it's a disease or a health issue or a social justice issue or anything else that you believe in and feel strongly about, telling our stories and advocating for change is something we can all do. Laura went from a mom who had never been in her state house to wrestling with a devastating diagnosis for her little boy and becoming a thought leader and advocating on a national level and building relationships through two different administrations in some of the most powerful offices in Washington. She talks about how personal her advocacy is, how she followed her heart, even among opposition and a little bit of controversy. She focuses on unity, on welcoming differing viewpoints, and selflessly advocating even when it doesn't benefit her own son. She is a breath of fresh air in our politically charged climate. She leads with hope and love and finding a path forward that unites rather than divides. Let's get started. Hi, Laura. It is so good to have you here with us today. Thanks for taking the time. Hi, Marisa. Thank you for having me. I'm excited. Of course, we have been looking forward to this interview for a really long time. Number one, I just love to talk to you. And number two, you are one of the most fierce advocates that I've ever known, in addition to being a friend. And I am so glad that we get to share your experience in a broader way today. So we're going to jump right in. February is a unique month. It's rare disease month in our world. There are millions of Americans with a rare disease. This is relevant to a lot of people. 
And we want to talk about today about what does it mean to be an advocate? And we're not only going to talk about advocacy on a large scale, but we're going to talk about advocacy on a smaller scale, maybe within your community or even within your own home, your own family. How do you advocate for yourself, but also a child with a rare disease or with a special medical condition? So Laura, you, dare I say, are well-known, maybe even a little bit famous. (laughs) You've spent a lot of time advocating and have been in the media. You've had a very public journey with your son, Jordan. Will you start, though, with us today just telling us a little bit about Jordan and about what brought you to advocacy? Well, Jordan is my 12, almost 13-year-old son living life with Duchenne muscular dystrophy. He was diagnosed when he was three, and he is just a joy. He is such a blessing, and he makes life better for everyone around him. But he is, his journey is he has Duchenne muscular dystrophy. So we do have to advocate for Jordan a lot, and I know we'll talk more about that as we go. So Laura, that's interesting. I want you to expand on that a little bit because I think one of the one of the cornerstones of advocacy is that everybody has a story and our stories are very unique and advocacy is not a one size fits all. So you said Jordan is living with Duchenne and it impacts him and your family. Will you just share with us, take us back to that a little bit and share what does that look like in your family in Jordan's life? Well, gosh, I mean, it's taken on a different component with each phase of this disease. When Jordan was first diagnosed, my girls were young. Jordan was only three. And at first, when we got the news that he had Duchenne, we kind of went into a state of mourning. And I don't know any other word to use. That's exactly what it felt like. But then very quickly after that, after the shock of the diagnosis, we decided that we were going to make the most of our journey. We were going to try to make every day the best day ever. And that's what we've done. Now, it hasn't come without challenges. As you know, Jordan is actually coming up on his five-year anniversary this month on Rare Disease Day, which is exciting for he started in a clinical trial. So five years now, it's now an approved treatment, but for four of those years, it was an experimental treatment. So we started traveling a lot, which had an impact on our family. My daughters were in school. We were gone a lot. So there's been lots of different phases of this journey. And as Jordan gets older, it looks different. I'm homeschooling him now. So now we're on a new journey with that. So lots of different phases that we've been through as a family. So for people who are listening who aren't familiar like you and I are with Duchenne, You mentioned that you went into a stage of mourning after the diagnosis and that he's in a clinical trial. Will you just share a little bit of background with that about how this hit you, why it hits us so hard as parents when we get this diagnosis, and what you maybe thought his life was going to look like and, and how it's been transformed by your advocacy, but also by clinical trial? Sure. So when Jordan was first diagnosed, left the hospital given zero hope. I didn't even know what a clinical trial was. I I don't even know if I'd ever heard those words before, but I do know that the doctor told us this was a disease with a shorter life expectancy. I don't like to put that number out there anymore because it's just devastating when I even say it or hear it. But I've learned since then that the range is all over the place. So we don't focus on that number But when you hear 
a doctor give you an age and it's a young age and, and say that nothing happening, I don't believe anything will happen in his lifetime. It was absolutely devastating. And so one thing that I've done, and everyone is different on this, but one thing I've done is Jordan's story has been public from that Friday that I left the hospital, I think, maybe even a couple of days before that. So we put it out there. I put it out there on social media and I have no regrets for the way that I've handled the journey in that way. It's opened so many doors. I had a friend actually, because she saw my post on Facebook, reach out to me. And she said, I want to connect you with someone who has a son with Duchenne. She lives very close to you. She works at the hospital. So immediately I started being connected with others who were on this journey for a disease that I didn't even know how to pronounce at the time. I mean, I think it took me weeks to even learn how to say the word. And and spelling it, right? Then learning to yeah. spell it. That's a whole different, and learning what it meant. Those are all parts of the process. Yes. So I immediately started connecting with others. And then I found out that even though we left the hospital with that um, horrible diagnosis, I found out that there actually were some things in the pipeline. I didn't know if it would be for Jordan or not, but I actually saw an episode on the Today Show for an exon skipping treatment. And I was like, wow, I wonder if this is something that would help Jordan. So I Googled the doctor. I reached out to him in the middle of the night. And I will never forget this because in the middle of the night, he emailed me back and he said, Yes, we don't have the treatment specifically for your son, but we are working on it. And please bring him to me. Let him be my patient. I'd love to meet him. And so from there, we just had this whole new level of hope. I mean, in the beginning, we had no hope. So it just was very exciting. It was also scary, though, because at that time, there were no approved treatments for Duchenne. The one that I saw highlighted was in a clinical trial at the time. And I didn't know still if this would you know, be something that happened in Jordan's lifetime. And not only did it happen in his lifetime, he participated in a clinical trial with only 16 boys in North America. And the drug is now FDA approved under the accelerated access pathway, which is just incredible, you know. Duchenne is part of our boys' lives because they have a mutation on a gene, and that mutation can happen anywhere along that gene. And some of the clinical trials, some of the potential treatments, they are mutation-specific, so they only apply to a percentage of the boys or young men. So the fact that Jordan got into a clinical trial, it's even more exciting, more miraculous, because those options are limited based on where the mutation is on the gene. So I've watched your journey from almost from day one, and it's pretty incredible. So let me ask you, though, so you, of course, started working on how do I help my own son? What does this look like? You were in a steep learning curve. How did that transition then to getting him in the clinical trial? Because that is a a unique form of advocacy. And I wanted you to talk about your heart pulling you in a direction that led you to advocate for other people beyond your own son with a pretty big effort nationally. So we found out that the treatment for Jordan was in the pipeline, but then something else happened. We got really excited about that treatment. And when it got closer to the time that it might become available in a clinical trial, something else was thrown at me that I wasn't really expecting. And that was 
as I looked at the the design of the trial, and keep in mind, like you mentioned before, like Jordan is one in 3,500 boys in the United States born with Duchenne. Then he's part of a subset of about 8% of patients who are amenable to even trying this treatment. But then the thing about clinical trials is only a few make it in. So there's a very strict criteria. So I started watching and learning and I realized that I didn't think Jordan was gonna make it into the clinical trial, the one that was coming up. And I think in some ways that's even harder, like knowing that there is something and you can't access it is in some ways harder than just, there is nothing, so we accept this. I know that sounds weird, but I've been there. and It is a weird place to be. So while we were waiting to see if Jordan might be a candidate for this treatment, something happened on a Sunday morning. My neighbor called me and said, hey, Laura, I saw an article in the Indianapolis Star this morning, and I don't know if this would mean anything to you, but there's something called the right to try. And someone in Indiana is working on this. Have you heard of it? So I immediately Google, and it seemed like it could be a different pathway for Jordan to potentially get a treatment. And this is important because this evolves way past this, but this is how it started. And the crazy thing is that Jordan was given a job as a firefighter at five years old. You know, he had real interviews at the firehouse. It made national news. And when I made the resume for Jordan to get a job as a firefighter, it was also to raise awareness for Duchenne. Like his little resume said that he had Duchenne. It talked about what Duchenne was. It talked about how he wanted to be a firefighter when he grew up, but I didn't know if that would happen. And I wanted him to get a job as a firefighter now and fulfill that dream. So that happened. And as a part of that little exciting thing that happened on Christmas morning, I'll never forget this. Someone invited Jordan to go to the state house, someone that does lobbying for the firefighters union said, Hey, Jordan and Laura, you want to come to the state house with us? And Jordan can lobby for getting a Dalmatian at the firehouses. And then there was another serious ask, but Jordan got to be a part of it. And he got to see the state house, he got to meet lawmakers at the state level. And for us, it was just like a field trip, you know? I don't even know if I had ever been in the state house. I didn't know anything about politics or passing laws or anything. Well, little did I know that like three days later, I think it was, my neighbor would call me and he would say, hey, did you see this article? Have you heard about Right to Try? I said, no, but I'm gonna find out. So I called the state house and I found out who was introducing it? And this was Monday morning. And they said, oh, by the way, there's going to be a committee hearing on this today. Typically, we don't allow speakers to speak unless they're already scheduled to do so. But if you want to come, you can come. So I literally used what I learned the days before with the firefighters. And I put together a little sheet about right to try and why it might matter to us. And literally within three hours, Jordan and I were at the state house. He was in his little firefighter outfit and we were giving a testimony. And I know that you don't know me in my prior days, but for me to be standing up in front of any group of people talking, oh my gosh, I never would have imagined it would even be a thing because I've always been a little more introverted, a little shy talking in front of people. But I'm going to tell you something when you are talking about your son and something that you are so passionate about, your voice rises up. And it's that's what happened for me that day. Laura, tell me what the response in the room was when you were there with Jordan and you spoke in, in from your heart. And that's what I love about you is you really do speak from your heart. What was the response in the room? Oh my gosh. So there were tears. 
There were hugs. It passed with unanimous bipartisan support in Indiana. Everyone supported it. Everyone fell in love with Jordan, our story. And that's the day that we started just building relationships, one relationship at a time. And the rest is history. But that's basically how it all began. So, Laura, I think that is so powerful. And it's a powerful story about advocacy. And we're not going to talk politics, but we can talk democracy, the ability for us to tell our story and to have our voices be heard still exists. And I think that we're in such a negative climate in our country, but the cornerstone of who we are, it's still there, the ability to make change and to have our voices be heard and to go speak at a state house with maybe a little trembling in your voice, but with the understanding that our representatives really, they work for us and you have a right to be heard. And and I think what you've done is so powerful for that reason, but that's not where it ended, right? And so tell us what happened next on a state level, but then what grew to a national level. Sure. So a lot of things happened after that. What evolved over time is, yes, we did get the right to try law passed in Indiana. Jordan became the national face of the movement. We ended up being invited to President Obama's final State of the Union address. And eventually it did become a federal law as well. But what happened in the midst of all that is I started this because I thought it could be a pathway for Jordan. And I want to be clear, Jordan has not utilized this pathway. He did not need to use right to try because about a year after that, Jordan made it into a clinical trial. So that happened. And we continued though to work on right to try because we had met so many patients outside of the Duchenne world who were really hopeful that this could be a pathway for them. And there were patients in the Duchenne world that were confused and didn't understand and thought maybe it could be a pathway for them. So there's that too. But we continued because one, I really believed in it. Jordan believed in it at such a young age. He loved making those trips, helping to tell his story. If you were to ask him, he would tell you like one of his favorite things about being in the trial is that he was trying something that he knew could also help other patients. Like I've heard him say this at such a young age, which is just incredible if you think about this. It is amazing. And so I'm in the other camp, so to speak, that Joseph's never gotten into a clinical trial. So there's the desire to get him into a clinical trial, but there are also unknowns in the clinical trial, and there's incredible sacrifice when you're in a a clinical trial. You're fortunate, and it's kind of what most people want. You want to get into a clinical trial, but it doesn't come without some cost to it. I'm not talking financial cost, but I'm talking cost of your time in your life. And you were flying to clinical trial appointments, and then you were flying to Washington just to advocate. So tell us about that when Right to Try was on a more national scale and you were advocating in Washington and you were there all the time. Yes. So I would say that we made 30 to 40 trips to Washington, D.C. And I look back on that and I'm like, oh my gosh, how did we do that? But when Jordan first started the clinical trial, we drove to Chicago every week. So that was like a full day. And then we found that there was a a really cheap flight to Chicago in the clinical trial. Like from a financial standpoint, it was almost the same to drive or fly, like mileage reimbursement fly. So we started flying. And then what we started doing is we started piggybacking off those trips. And we would often fly to Chicago to get the infusion. And then from there, we would go to Washington, D.C. for a day or two. 
and then come home. So the State of the Union is what started our, our federal journey. So when we got to the State of the Union, we actually met one of our senators. I gave him the right to try book and I, I told him why we were there and what we were working on. And he said, please reach out anytime. He ended up becoming the co-sponsor of the Senate bill. And I think it's important to say that this has been an important part of my journey is being able to work with members on both sides of the aisle. And that is why Right to Try was passed. The journey was just fascinating. But for Jordan and I, what really opened the doors for getting Right to Try passed is we started building relationships with Republicans, Democrats, and we never saw it as a political movement. We saw it more as like a human rights movement. And that's how we would tell our story. Never talked politics. I used to say I was bipartisan. And then I learned more about that. Like, no, I'm not bipartisan. I'm nonpartisan. Well, now I think about it and I'm like, no, I'm actually anti-partisan. That's a great way to say it. I think that's another really important point about efficacy in general. So the right to try was was not without controversy, the, the effort for that. There were people who didn't believe in it in the same way that you did. There is a belief that anything we do on a national level is going to be partisan. It's going to be either Democratic or Republican. And I think that even locally, when we advocate for our kids at our schools or anywhere else, we think there are going to be two sides. And I've been to Washington with you, and I've been in congressional briefings. I've, I've been in the White House with you. And I have to say, that was the most moving thing to me. It makes me emotional now. It was like the first time I ever went to Arlington. And I, I remember the first time at Arlington, and I thought, I'm so proud to be an American. And watching you navigate this and literally being there physically with you a couple of times, there is so much good that goes on behind closed doors and outside of media stories. And your journey with Jordan really epitomizes that. And for you, they're not political parties. There's just the effort of, we have work to do, we have lives to save, and we're going to do it together. And I think that is the most powerful thing about your advocacy. What do you say to people who still want to make it political or still believe there have to be sides and right and wrong? It is very simple. And I will tell you, I had a rule for myself from the beginning. I do not put anything negative on my social media or anywhere. I don't even really engage in negative conversation too much about anyone in the political world or anywhere, really. Because if you really ever know someone's story, I, I heard this quote, if you really knew someone's full story, you couldn't help but love them. And that's what I learned through our journey. I always focused on what united us and sharing our story. Our congressman comes to our house. He plays Foursquare with us. He's brought his daughter. She's made cookies with my daughter. Jordan got an open invitation to the White House. We invite people to our home that we never thought would come to our home. I mean, our senator came on Jordan's birthday because I think the key to all of this is the relationship building. I won't engage in conversations about the negativity that, you know, is on the media, even with Right to Try when we had opposition and certain, you know, lawmakers would post negative things. I would always refrain from like retweeting that or, or attacking on social media because it gets you nowhere. The result of those relationships has a trickle down effect, even though, yes, at that time, my journey was about right to try. I've used those relationships to continue to do advocacy work and just continue you know, to build those relationships. I think that's the most important part of advocacy. I agree. 
I agree. I think that's where the magic is. And I think that's why you and Jordan are so powerful. Laura, you are a bulldog in terms of just asking questions and advocating. What I think is powerful and important for us to know is that advocacy is incremental. So I think when we're in a situation, as you and I are, where we are literally looking for life-saving options, we'd like a complete answer. We'd like to do one thing, have one bill pass, have one clinical trial, and it, and it fixes everything. And that's not the way it works. So how do you approach that when there could be opposition to what you're advocating for? Or you just know it's not it's not everything that needs to happen, but there's got to be more that comes after that. And I know there have been some conversations about the right to try in particular. And I'm curious for your perspective on what good has come of that and maybe even then what the limitations are and what needs to happen now, what happens next. Yeah, that's a really good question. I learned early on in my journey with Right to Try that there was something happening that I couldn't articulate. And this isn't anything you'll read on my social media, but it was happening in my heart. And I don't really know how else to say that. But even though there was some opposition, there was some opposition in our own community. I remember the night before I gave my first testimony for Right to Try, there was actually someone in our in the Duchenne community that begged me not to give the testimony and actually even asked if they could put someone in my place. And this is the night before I'm about to give my first testimony before federal <laughs> piece of government. And I was up all night over it. There was some fear that if Right to Try passed, it would keep another Duchenne drug from passing. And all of this was coming at me. But in my heart, I wanted to keep going. And I felt like it was the right thing. And I did keep going. I was feeling like I'm not going to stop fighting because I'm going to fight for you. So it was a journey that started for my one. And then it became about everyone that wanted the right to be able to try an experimental treatment. But at the end of the day, and not to get too religious on you here, but this is a very important part of my journey, is what I realized at the end was it was really all about the one. And for me, that was my faith. And it was like the one that was guiding me and building me and strengthening me through this journey. And then it was more about every single one, every individual one that could benefit from this. As you know, we continued to fight the journey. Jordan made it into a clinical trial. And what made it even more beautiful is he got to be there when one of the very first patients was dosed with an experimental treatment using the right to try law. He literally got to be there, pray with this person, hold this person's hand, and they fought together. And he got to see the results of that. And it wasn't in the Duchenne world. It was in a different disease state altogether. And I think for us, like seeing that we stayed the course and it wasn't just about Duchenne. In fact, it wasn't that much about Duchenne after we really spent the journey, but it might be someday. There's a right to try 2.0 right now that we're going to be helping with. And it's more about individualized treatment. It just opened the door. Those relationships have opened the door to talk about other things. I testified on a committee when you were there about drug pricing and how there are really two sides to that story. And I shared our side. So it's opened doors to be able to advocate in lots of different ways for many different things. Yeah. And I think that when we talk about advocacy, it's important to just understand that it often starts very personally. I do advocacy. I go to Capitol Hill and it, it all started with my Joseph. But 
I know that there are things that I may tell a story about or I may support, and it's really not about Joseph at all. I know it won't help him. And I think that's where advocacy takes on a whole new level. Then I think that ultimately it wasn't about personal gain for you. It it, it moved away from knowing that it was going to help Jordan to just what you felt like was the right thing to do and seeing it through. And I think that's a super powerful part of advocacy. If we if we even take away what the topics are, what what we're advocating for, any kind of hurdles or politics, just it comes from the heart and following what you believe to be right and true. Any other benefits or good things that you've seen come from that since the passage of that? I still get messages today from families who have benefited from this law. And I love sharing those stories with Jordan. And it's very neat to see Jordan at such a young age understand the impact. And he'll never completely understand the impact that he's had. But to understand and for him to stay the course and make all those trips, knowing that he wasn't utilizing right to try. He was in a clinical trial, but he wanted to keep doing that for other people. And the clinical trial too, like, yes, like you said, we started that. I started it for my one. I'm not going to lie. We, we entered the clinical trial because we thought it would benefit Jordan. I'm not going to sit here and say, oh no, we did this for science. We did it for everyone else. No, I was thinking about Jordan at that time. I'm just being honest, but I'm very grateful that that, led to other patients being able to access the treatment. Now I try to share with other parents what we've learned along this journey with Medicaid waivers, with accessing treatments, IEPs in schools. So I do think there's a lot of value in that in just sharing what you've learned along the way. So Laura, how can somebody be an advocate if they're not going to fly to Washington, if they're maybe not going to end up at the state house speaking? What does advocacy look like on a little bit of a smaller scale, but still with the potential to have great impact? I love this question because <laughs> I feel like, especially this month when we talk a lot about advocacy and like making a difference on Capitol Hill, there is so much you can do locally. So I'm just going to start with these words, do it with love. Do not go in with your boxing gloves on. Do not go in with a chip on your shoulder. And that goes for advocating for your child at the park when something's happening that you don't like and you need to step up for your kid going into an IEP meeting. I have found that if you approach everything with love and humility, that's a big one for me, being humble not acting like you are the authority and you know it all and that person is doing something wrong. Bring them in, make them feel like even sometimes they made the decision for what you already had in your mind needed to happen. I think being humble, being kind, I know that's kind of cliche, but I just try to live my life by that with any meeting I have. So when you go into an IEP meeting, I think just approaching it with sharing your story, doing it with love and humility. I I think that's the most important thing. So for those who've never had to do it yet, IEP is a special meeting, individualized education plan at a school where if you have a special circumstance with your child and you need some extra help, it's critically important to have an IEP meeting, to have an IEP, the plan in place. Laura, we won't do a whole talk on 
government services like Medicaid and Medicaid waivers and health insurance. There's so much we could talk about advocacy-wise. But on a very individual basis within our own homes, within what we do need individually for our loved ones, it might be for, I had to navigate this with my parents when, when they were elderly and sick, is services, health insurance. And I, of course, have to navigate it with Joseph now. How do you advocate for yourself with within an incredibly complex system that needs to be highly personalized for our needs? Well, I think just doing lots of research and telling your story, embrace the community, embrace the people around you that are already knowledgeable and ask them for help. Every month we do a meeting for Indiana families through our Best Day Ever Foundation, and it's all about parents helping other parents. So I moderate it, I lead it, but really the, the idea is we all learn from each other. And you talk about this, I think in your introduction, we are each other's keepers, but we can also be each other's teachers and we're better together. And I think that is one of the most powerful things when it comes to advocacy is you're not alone. You don't need to reinvent something. You don't need to like recreate this. Someone's already been there. Someone's already done it. So reach out to someone for support that's already been through that, that can help guide you through it. There's always someone that's been through it, I feel like. I agree. Laura, through this whole process of learning and really becoming an advocate, you've advocated for Jordan on a very personal level with what he needs as an individual boy. You've advocated on a state level, on, of course, a a huge national level. What have you learned about, about human nature? about people? What I have learned about people is that there's always good. There's always good. And you just have to find it. And that's what you have to focus on, what unites you. And as soon as you do that, they're on your team. And it's not hard to get people on your team. It's not hard to fall in love with people if you let yourself, if you just have an open heart and don't go into it thinking they're the enemy. Because there's good in everyone. Yeah, I agree. So, Laura, you're a game changer. You are humble and you're curious and you are so, so smart and so heart-centered. What do you hope your legacy is, yours and Jordan's? I hope that we can leave behind that no matter who you are, what your journey is, what your story, your strengths and weaknesses, you can change the world. I tell my girls every day when I take them to school, when they get out of the car, I tell them to go change the world. And sometimes they laugh, sometimes they don't respond. I'm sure sometimes they think it's cheesy, but I think you can change the world with every conversation you have, every encounter you have. I think you have the ability to change the world. And sometimes we don't even know we're doing it. It's beautiful. Thanks, Laura. You are awesome. And I'm so grateful for you to share with everybody listening. Thank you so much. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Making Our Way. If you enjoyed this, please share it and be sure to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts so you don't miss any episodes. Production support for Making Our Way was generously provided by PTC Therapeutics, Pfizer, and Sarepta Therapeutics. Thank you for making this possible. If you'd like to learn more about the work that Team Joseph is doing to support the Duchenne community and to make the world a better place, please visit us at teamjoseph.org. Mm-hmm.